So again, it was good to have a little break from preaching. I do appreciate those that filled in while I was away, um, especially Robert Knuth. And uh, it was good to have that time of rest. But now we come back to Matthew, back to the gospel of Matthew as we are working our way through it, getting close to the Passion Week, the, the week, the time of Christ's crucifixion and resurrection. But when we left off, we left off in the Olivet Discourse. So our sermon text this morning is the conclusion of that, which is found in Matthew 25. Matthew 25, beginning in verse 31. We read these words. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from another, one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer to them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. And then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And he will answer to them, Truly I say to you, As you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is God's holy word. Since it has been some time since we have looked at Matthew, let us go back for a moment and consider where we have been, what Jesus is saying. Again, beginning in Matthew 24, Jesus starts what we call the Olivet Discourse. This is Jesus' last sermon to his disciples before his death on the cross. And in this sermon, he has predicted the coming destruction of the temple and the fall of the city of Jerusalem. He explained what life would be like at that time, thus signifying the end of the old way of relating to God and the beginning of the new way through Christ himself in this new temple that is the church. That disaster 
would be swift, the destruction of the temple, and it would be terrible. And it pointed forward to an even greater day, the second coming of Christ the King. And this then led the disciples to ask Jesus, what will be the sign then of your coming at the end of the age? What, how will we know? And what Jesus says is, well, there is no sign. Only the Father knows. Life will continue as it always has. People will eat and drink and marry and work and play, and then the end will come. And you will know it, for it will come swiftly and without warning, and all will see the King in all his glory. And therefore, Jesus says, your disciples, his disciples must be prepared. They must make themselves ready through faith. And he gives three parables at the end, beginning at the end of chapter 24 and continuing in through most of chapter 25 of Matthew's gospel to, to drive home that point of being ready when the king comes. And we learn from those parables that believers' readiness is their faithfulness to Jesus Christ. In other words, it is their trust in his mercy towards them that is evidenced through lives of devotion and worship to him. And that, of course, is in perfect obedience, but it is the desire, the, the, the pursuit of those things that glorify God. And so now Jesus brings all of that home, and he comes to the conclusion of this final sermon to his disciples. He spells out in great clarity that he indeed will come in glory and in power to judge all the people of the earth, for he is the king of the earth. Now imagine being one of those first disciples and hearing these words, this, this final message, this last sermon before his death on the cross. I mean, what is Jesus saying? He, he's not giving them a message that, hey, you can have your best life now, all is well, just carry on. He doesn't give them a message of universal love that God simply accepts all people as delivers a message of judgment. However, the truth of Jesus' coming as judge over all the earth is meant to be to his people, to his disciples, to those who know him through faith, it is meant to be a message of hope and of comfort. You see, this message, it will either confirm that a person is Christ's or condemns them as someone who is outside of God's covenant mercy. It will give you rest or it will create restlessness. It will fortify your faith or cause you to fear. And the first thing we see as Jesus concludes this is that he is the eternal king and therefore has all authority to judge people's lives. He has all authority. In fact, all through the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has been making bold statements that he is this long-promised king of God's eternal kingdom. He is the fulfillment of God's ancient promise to establish a throne that will last forever. And with those statements, one word that is communicated again and again and again is authority, authority, or power. Jesus has unsurpassed 
in ultimate authority over all people, all things, all of creation for all time. He has authority to heal those who are sick, authority to cause the blind to see, authority to give hearing to the deaf, authority to cause the lame to walk, authority to calm the, the chaos of storms, authority to drive away demons, defeat Satan, and bring redemption, authority to cause the dead to live, authority to forgive sinners of not just some, but all their sins. And right away, we see that authority proclaimed in no uncertain terms, as he says in verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. That title, Son of Man, we've, we've seen that before. It speaks of the eschatological Messiah, the deliverer and redeemer of all God's people from all time. It's a title that uh, was first spoken of by God through his prophet Daniel in Daniel chapter 7. And there the Son of Man is, is said to be the one who will take dominion of the kingdom of God so that the peoples from all corners of the world, every nation, every kingdom, every language may serve him alone. His kingdom will be everlasting and nothing can or will destroy it. It will be the, the final amen, the, the period at the end of the last sentence of history on this earth so that the new and the better creation might begin forever. Jesus coming in glory to judge all nations then is the fulfillment of that promise of the Son of Man. He has Authority. We further see that authority to act as final judge over all people and the fact that he is attended to by the angels of heaven. And when the Bible speaks of the hosts of heaven or the company of angels, it usually follows that God is working in some wondrous means to bring about redemption for his people. Angels will appear to announce either God's judgment or his blessing to warn or to proclaim peace. For example, they warned Lot that judgment would fall on Sodom and Gomorrah and thus he must escape. They announced to the shepherds in the fields of Bethlehem the birth of the newborn Jesus. And it was angels that guarded the gates of Eden to fulfill God's judgment upon the sinful rebellion of man, keeping them from the tree of life. And it is angels that guard the very throne of God, proclaiming his holiness. They are representatives of God's acting in authority over all the world. So Jesus' coming, we note here though, is not attended by just some angels. No, it says here in Matthew that he will come with all the angels. Every last one. The entire innumerable host of heaven will accompany him, signifying his immeasurable authority. We further see Jesus' authority to judge all the earth in the picture of him sitting on a throne. 
I mean, thrones by themselves convey a sense of authority, don't they not? Uh, those who sit on them, they, they rule over others, and they have the right to make judgments and decisions in accordance with the authority that is granted them. They are a symbol of power. And even in our own legal system, our judges in the courtroom sit elevated up front in the middle of the courtroom, a place of authority. So Christ Jesus will sit then upon his throne as judge with the authority as the creator of all things, for he is God, the same substance as the Father and the Spirit, with all the rights and privileges of divinity. Thus he describes his coming here in Matthew as being in great glory. And glory, of course, is, is radiance or majesty, the, the splendor of his appearance. And what a contrast this second coming of Christ is to his first advent. For then he came as a baby in a manger. But when he comes again, it will be as a king, as a judge on a throne. Then he came very humbly, very lowly, taking the form of a servant. But now he will come in power and honor. Before his coming was only witnessed by a few shepherds, his mother, his adopted father, some animals. But when he comes again, he will be seen by every single person. It will be obvious to all. And thus the authority of Jesus is authority to judge, divine authority, the authority of heaven. It is holy, set apart, unique, not held by any other person on this earth. It is sovereign and eternal. Indeed, the hosts of heaven cries before the throne, as we read in Revelation 4, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Jesus has all authority. And because of that, he can fulfill all God's purposes and promises. In fact, his judgment, and this is the second thing we see here, his judgment is the covenant fulfillment of all God's promises. We begin uh, in verse 32 again, and we read these words. Before him, as he describes this judgment, will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. And the central promise of God's covenant is this. It is, they shall be my people, and I will be their God. We read that in Jeremiah 32. And that is precisely what is unfolding right here before us in Matthew 25. Jesus, in judgment, is dividing the nations into two groups. You are either part of his covenant people or you are not. You are inside his covenant or outside of it. There are only two options. There is no middle or neutral group. And notice that he says all nations are gathered before him. That is to say nobody escapes his judgment. It is certain. It is sure. As Matthew Henry puts it, all must be summoned before Christ's tribunal, all of every age of the world, from the beginning to the end of time. 
all of every place on earth, even from the remotest corners of the world, most obscure and distant from each other, all nations, all those nations of men that are made of one blood to dwell on the face of the earth. That doesn't leave anybody out. So Jesus then turns to this illustration of a shepherd, of dividing his flock, separating out the sheep from the goats. And of course, this would have been familiar, again, to his initial audience. And sheep and goats at this time were kept in the same fields. It's one big herd, one big flock, but they were often then divided at nighttime. And sheep at this time, they were not bright, fluffy white. They were usually, uh, they were lighter in color than the goats, but they could be difficult to identify uh, if you just looked out on a field. So to the trained eye, to the practiced shepherd, he was able to divide them and separate them quickly. And the point then of the picture is very much of that of separation and the shepherd knowing who his sheep are. In the Gospel of John, Jesus calls himself the Good Shepherd. When he calls his sheep, they know his voice. In verse 34, the voice of the shepherd, who is also the king, calls to his sheep, Come you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That is covenant fulfillment. Kingdom is now being consummated and complete. All the king's people enter into that place that he has promised and prepared for them from eternity past. And those who inherit that kingdom, those who are called by God's grace to enter, they are his people and he is their God. The covenant is fulfilled. But then the king turns to those on his left, the goats, and he speaks very different words. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me. Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Instead of that welcoming come, he says depart. Instead of calling them blessed, he says they're cursed. Instead of inheriting a kingdom prepared for them, they are thrown into a place of judgment prepared for Satan himself. And as harsh as that fate sounds, it is most definitely and certainly deserved. You see, for the goats on the left... They are those who remained outside of God's covenant. They had continued to follow their own path, a path of rebellion against the very king who now sits enthroned in judgment over them. They are thus cursed. And this cursing, by the way, is also part of a covenant. It is part of covenant fulfillment. You see, in human covenants, which is the ancient relationship that God uses to relate to his people, there are always blessings and cursings. There are blessings for those who remain in the covenant because they have kept the conditions of the covenant, and there are cursings for those who are now cast outside of the covenant because they fail to keep the conditions. And we see examples of that all through the Bible. 
For example, in the very first covenant God makes in the Bible, it is with Adam, who represented all humanity. And God said that if Adam would obey and not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he would be blessed, he would receive a blessing of eternal life. However, if he would eat of that tree, the curse of death would come upon him, which is, of course, what happened in the turn of history, and hence the world suffers under the curse of sin until this very day. Of course, God made a new covenant, and we call it the covenant of grace, because he promised to redeem, rescue, and save his people from that curse of death by his grace. And the unfolding of that covenant is the story of the gospel, the story of redemption as it is laid out for us from Genesis through Revelation. And God worked through different administrations of that covenant of grace, which are in turn smaller covenant relationships, revealing more and more of his saving mercy so that he might ultimately have this people for his name. One of those administrations of this covenant of grace we call the Mosaic Covenant. And again, we see that theme of blessings and cursings. In fact, if you go to Deuteronomy 28, you will see a list of blessings and a list of cursings. Blessings if Israel would keep God's law and cursings if they would break it. Again, that is summarized in Leviticus 26 where we see the same thing. Blessings and cursings. And so, so both blessing and cursing are very much covenant realities. And they find their ultimate expression in this judgment of Christ Jesus the Son. He separates those who are part of his covenant, his people, from those who are not. He blesses or gives a reward to those who are his, but he casts aside or curses those who are not. After all, he is the mediator of this covenant, the king who has the authority to do so. And thus some will go away, as Matthew writes, into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This judgment of Christ, then, is not a division of rich and poor. He does not put the educated on the right and the illiterate on the left. There's no division made between the elite and the common people. No distinction is made between ethnicities or cultures, black or white. Those are not the criteria for his judgments. There is one criteria, one only. You are either part of his people or you are not. You are blessed or you are cursed. You are counted as righteous in Christ by faith in him or you are unrighteous. And that should cause all of us to ask the question then, well, how do I know I'm a sheep or I'm a goat? Well, quite simply, as we see in this text, sheep act like sheep and goats act like goats. In verse 35 through 36, Jesus lays out the grounds for his judgment. He says, For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. 
And then the righteous asked Jesus, well, Lord, when did we do these things to you? And he says, truly I say to you, as you did it unto the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Now, you read that and say, well, wait a minute, Pastor, are you saying that these sheep and these goats, the righteous and the unrighteous, that their works are judged? Uh, doesn't that mean then that, that salvation is based upon the merit of one's works in this life, the things they do? Well, I am saying that your works are judged because that is exactly what Jesus says. But no, this passage does not teach salvation based on your merit. In fact, it's all about the merit of Christ on your behalf. There's a couple keys that help us see the beauty of what Jesus is actually teaching here. First, notice in Jesus' reply in verse 40 to the sheep, uh, he says that the works that they do toward, are done towards the least of his brothers. Jesus isn't talking about charity in general. He's talking about love that is shown towards those who are part of his church, his sheep, his blessed and while it is certainly commanded by God and a good thing to show love and compassion and kindness to all people as God's image bearers, that's how we love our neighbors as ourselves, the scriptures emphasize the fact that those who are believers, those who have trusted Christ, are to show greater love towards other believers. Jesus said in John 13, a new commandment I give to you, speaking to his disciples, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. In other words, sheep are known by doing what sheep do. And what does Jesus' flock do? They show love in the church, one towards another. Next, note that Jesus says, by serving others in love, or by not serving them in love, you are either serving Christ or you are not serving him. And that is important because it comes down to this identity of who the least of these are. You see, believers are the least of these. They are united to Christ. Like the Bible teaches this whole idea of union with Jesus. You see it all over. 1 Corinthians 6, uh, 17. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. 1 John 4, 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. Colossians 3, 3. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. There is this unity. Some... Or, and since believers then are you united to Christ when they serve each other within the church, they are serving Jesus. That's what Christ is teaching here. The Apostle Paul also emphasizes this in his passages on gifts within the church that God gives in, in 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12. Being one body in Christ as we serve one another, we are thus serving Christ our Lord since we are his body. So coming back then to our text here in Matthew, 
What we see is that these works of love and charity are judged because they show what kind of person somebody truly is. Jesus doesn't judge based on how many works they are done. He doesn't say that at all. Nor does he say that certain works merited a person's status as either righteous or blessed. In fact, he just calls them that. You are blessed and you are righteous. They are that by the grace of God. But it is the righteous who evidence that, that they truly are Christ through that love towards the least of these brothers, towards the church. And the unrighteous, the goats, they do not love Christ's church. They do not love the least of these because they do not love Christ. Faith is characterized by love, love that is demonstrated then through these works, and hence they are judged. And that's what the epistle of James is all about, and many Christians have struggled with it, that seeing this tension between works and faith, but true faith in Christ is evidenced by works. We show our faith by actively living it out before others. In other words, sheep act like sheep and goats will act like goats. But sometimes what, what happens when sheep act like goats? I mean, does that happen? Of course it does. The church is not perfect. We do not love one another as well as we ought. We acknowledge that. Because saints are also sinners, we still deal with our old sinful selves. There's this battle of who we are in Christ, that union with Christ, and who we once were before we trusted him. And that is God's ongoing work then of sanctification within us. But notice this, as Jesus judges the works of his sheep, he doesn't list anything negative about them. He doesn't point out their sins. He doesn't mention how they failed him. But the goats, the unrighteous, the unbelievers, the only thing he lists is how they have failed. And that is because the sinful failures of the sheep have already been judged in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And so there is no condemnation. There is only the good that we have done for him. The only thing Jesus sees when he comes in glory and power and might and authority to judge all the nations of the earth, the only thing that he sees when he looks upon you, if you are indeed in him by faith alone, is the good things you have done for him, no matter how small or insignificant they might seem to you. The evil things, the sin. It's already been canceled by the blood of Christ. But for those who are not Christ, those who do not know him, those who remain outside of the covenant mercy because they've rejected him, the only thing the judge then sees is every one of their sins. Every one 
every failure, every rebellious deed, every thought of hate and lust and evil towards others, the big sins and the little ones, he sees all of it because it has not been canceled by the blood of Christ. Which leaves him no choice but as an impartial and a holy and righteous judge to say, depart from me, you cursed. But to all who by the grace of God have been made part of his people and have, are thus trusting in that good shepherd, they will hear his voice say those sweet words, come. Come to the kingdom that is prepared for you. Come and inherit the, the gift of his grace. Come, you who labored in this weary life for my sake and enter into my rest. Come, you who bore my cross and now wear this crown. Come, you who were once so far off and now sit at my table and feast with me. Welcome, 10,000 welcomes to you, my people. You see, not one saint will be lost in the crowd of sinners that are bid to depart. Every sheep will be accounted for. Not one will be lost from the most seemingly insignificant lamb to the most mature ram. All are brought in to the shepherd's fold, to the kingdom. Those who are blessed by the Father, are Christ's beloved. And that, dear brothers and sisters, that's the beauty of the gospel of grace. That is the hospitality of heaven to you in Jesus. So do the works of love. Love one another. Let us be known by our love, which proclaims to Ann Arbor, to Michigan, to the world, that we are Christ's beloved flock, and he is our Lord and King. And if the coming judgment of Christ causes you to fear, then run. Run to him now. If it causes you to be restless, find rest in him as he makes you one of his own through faith. May the truth that Jesus is coming to judge all people for all time strengthen your faith and encourage you to keep pressing on for him. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word. We're thankful that our Lord is coming one day soon in a day and a time and an hour that you, only you as Father, knows. But he is coming, it is sure, and it is certain. And we rejoice in that, Father. We rejoice, for it means that all the wrongs of this world, all the evils will be done away, and all that will remain will be your peace, your goodness forevermore. And so, Father, we pray as your people, we pray and ask that Christ would come quickly, that he would come and restore us to his side, that we would hear that sweet welcome that bids us to enter into your very throne room. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.